You are listening to The Dr. Kinney Show, and I'm your host, Erin Kinney, a naturopathic doctor and speaker who's passionate about teaching you how to understand what is happening in your body, why your body is reacting the way it is, and how to make the appropriate changes in your life to get your body back into balance. Something I've learned from my private practice is that the more patients know about their health, the more likely they are to make better diet and lifestyle choices, which ultimately leads them to a faster recovery. Each week, you are going to learn actionable tips, tricks, and teachings from myself, along with the help of top experts in the holistic health community, so that you can make better informed decisions about your body and your healthcare. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Dr. Kinney Show. This week, we're going to do another Q&A. I had such a great response from the last Q&A session that we did, and you guys submitted some more great questions. So I'm going to jump right in and start answering more questions. If you really enjoyed this Q&A session and you have a question that you would like answered, please feel free to send us either a DM on Instagram or send us an email to info at com with your question and we'll get it on the list for questions to be answered. So question number one today is, how do I know if food allergies are something I should test for and what are the best way to test for them? This is a great question and I'm sure this is something that a lot of you guys have thought about at some point. I usually will test for food allergies if there's some sort of chronic GI stuff going on. So if you've got chronic diarrhea, gas, bloating, even chronic constipation. So those symptoms can be definitely something to look for. The other thing that can be a really common indication that there's food sensitivities or allergies going on is chronic post-nasal drip sinus inflammation, headaches, migraines. Sometimes when you're eating something that's inflaming the GI tract, the small intestine and the sinus cavities are linked. So typically, and you may be someone who doesn't have any GI issues, but maybe you're constantly getting sinus infections or you're constantly having that really irritating post-nasal drip. Really important to find out if there's something that you're eating every day that might be triggering that response. Oh, acid reflux is another one that I forgot to mention. So in the GI realm, if you're constantly getting reflux, And here's the thing about food allergies or food sensitivities, because there's a slight difference. When you're sensitive to a food, you may eat a food on Monday morning and maybe on Wednesday morning you have acid reflux. Or you may eat a food Tuesday evening and, you know, Wednesday evening you have really bad stomach pain or gas and bloating. When you have a food sensitivity, that's a little bit different than a true food allergy. True food allergies, they're pretty easy to know what's going on. So take, for example, a child who has a peanut allergy. They eat the peanut. Immediately they either get a rash or their lips blow up or their throat closes in. You know, they're having what we call an anaphylactic response. And so you can have that. But typically, as I said, if you have an anaphylactic reaction to a food, you're usually going to be aware of it. And usually your doctor's going to test for it because you're going to be like, hey, I ate peanuts and then my throat closed up. So they'll run the test and they'll be like, yep, you definitely have a peanut allergy. A food sensitivity, which is what I think this question was probably geared towards, is they're what we call IgG food allergies, which are different from the anaphylactic allergies, which are what we call IgE reactions. So the body has lots of different ways that it can have an immunological response to something. And typically when there's an anaphylactic response, it goes through what we call the IgE immunoglobin pathway. That is the immediate response. You eat a food, you have anaphylactic response. 
There's another type of response, which is called an IgG-mediated response. And this is when, again, as I spoke before, you eat a food on a Monday and you maybe don't have a symptom until Wednesday. So I'll use an example. I have an IgG reaction to eggs. Every time I eat eggs, doesn't matter if they're cooked in something or I eat them straight, I will get huge cystic acne on my chin about two days later. Super strange. I've seen patients have all kinds of weird reactions to, you know, an IgG so they'll eat whatever they're IgG reactive to. And a couple of days later, XYZ symptom appears. And this is, it can be really tricky to figure this out, particularly, you know, even with a food elimination diet, especially if you're sensitive to more than one food, because you might eat something on Monday, you might eat five things on Monday, and then Wednesday you have all these symptoms. It's hard to parcel out what's going on. So if you're struggling and you really think that there's something or some sort of food that you're sensitive to, this is when it's good to maybe test. So there are lots of different options. And let me just preface this before I get into this. Tests are not always 100% accurate and food allergy testing cannot always be 100% accurate, but it can give us a good idea and it can give us something to start working with. So there's a company called Everly Well, which I have a lot of patients that use. It's a direct-to-consumer test. You could order it online. You send a little prick of blood out and they will test your system for IgG food sensitivities for 90 to 100 different foods. You can also ask your doctor to do that through LabCorp or Quest. They can test for that. And so, again, I find that if you're struggling with something chronic and you haven't been able to figure out what it is, you've tried elimination diets and you're still not sure and you're still having the symptoms, it can be really helpful to test for food allergies. The other thing that these panels can do is if you test for, let's say we do this 96 food allergy panel, either through Everly Well or through a lab that your insurance will cover, the Everly Well test, insurance typically doesn't cover that way. And let's say you come back being sensitive to 85 of the foods. So the majority of the foods come back being flagged as you having a sensitivity. This is usually people get really upset and they freak out. They're like, what am I going to eat? This usually indicates that you have what we call leaky gut. And I'm pretty sure I've talked about this on another podcast episode. If I haven't, I know I've done videos about it on Instagram, so you can go check that out. I'm not going to go super in-depth about it today, but this can be a good way to confirm or deny whether or not you have leaky gut. Because when you do have leaky gut, you typically will come back being sensitive to a lot of foods. And this is oftentimes how you develop a food sensitivity. I get a lot of patients that will be like, no, I don't think I have food issues. You know, I've been eating this food my whole life. It's never caused any problems. But then we go and we run the food sensitivity test and I'm like, oh, yep, sorry. You know, you're having a reaction to egg. You're having a reaction to dairy. You're having a reaction to XYZ nut. You can develop these food sensitivities and typically they develop because the gut has some sort of compromised function or you're in some sort of leaky gut situation. So that could be a good way to kind of understand whether or not you have leaky gut. And so often I will run this panel when I'm kind of trying to decide if if we're going to go ahead and treat for leaky gut. And that's usually, so if you, and I just want to say, because I get a lot of patients that come to me, they're like, I ran that Everly Well test or I've done an at-home food allergy test and I came back sensitive to almost everything I eat. I just want you to take a deep breath. If this is you, it's okay. You don't necessarily have to remove all of those foods. What you need to do is talk to someone who is proficient in healing leaky gut or treating leaky gut, and you need to treat that leaky gut because once you treat that, typically most of those food sensitivities will go away. So I hope that answers that question. And again, the best way to test for them, I, I, really, I like the Everly Well test. There are other companies that will do direct pay testing that your doctor may order. Or like I said, you can have them paid for insurance if you go through LabCorp or Quest, which I'm a big fan of having insurance pay for testing. So awesome question. Thank you for asking. All right. Question number two is, what is the best way to prevent Alzheimer's? It runs in my family and I'm terrified of losing my memory. Awesome question. 
So there's a lot of different things we can do. And one of the first things I'll say is um, the first thing you could do is look at what meds you're currently taking. There are a lot of medications that can that they're linking now to Alzheimer's. So if you're taking anti-anxieties in the form of benzos, so Xanax, clonopin, any like the acute acting anti-anxieties, those over long-term use can put you more at risk for developing Alzheimer's. Also look at statins. If you're taking something that's lowering your cholesterol, those drugs can put you more at risk for Alzheimer's. So if that's not something that you absolutely have to be on, and this is again something, talk to your doctor, talk to your naturopathic doctor about what your cholesterol looks like because these drugs will put you more at risk for Alzheimer's. So that's medication stuff. The other medication that I see kind of linked to this are proton pump inhibitors. So if you're taking something for acid reflux all the time, it's going to lower your absorption of nutrients. And when we lower absorption of nutrients over time, you're going to have less nutrients to feed your brain cells. Right? So if you're concerned about this, if you're listening and this does run in your family and you're worried about, you know, you want to make sure you're preventing this and you're on any of those meds that I mentioned, definitely talk to your doctor, see if there's another option, or maybe now's the time to explore some alternative routes, see if you can get off any of those medications if that's possible for you, because those would be the, that would be the first step in terms of prevention. Number two is make sure you're giving your brain enough brain fuel. So the brain loves good, healthy fats. So avocados, nuts, taking a fish oil can be really, really helpful. And then the other thing you can do is make sure you're using your brain in an active way. So, you know, a lot of people will do crosswords, they'll do Sudoku. We want to make sure that we're building those neural pathways and keeping them going. So do something that's challenging for you. Make sure that you feel challenged. So if you're in kind of like a rut and your brain feels kind of foggy and you're feeling like you need to have a daily practice that's challenging your brain a little bit. So we want to do that. We want to challenge the brain. The other thing we want to do is we want to give the brain a break. So there's tons of research that, you know, taking a little bit of a meditation break or have the brain stop thinking for a little bit every single day, that will help prevent the brain from having any sort of pathological issues. So those are, those are the things that I typically like general, like look at medications if they're possible for you to go off of. If they're not, you know, then talk to your naturopath about other options. And then I also had this really great conversation recently with an audiologist and we were discussing how hearing and hearing loss kind of earlier in life can really affect memory and can affect the early onset of things like dementia. So if you're not hearing super well, get in before you think you need to and start talking about hearing aids and allowing your um, making sure that your hearing is fully functional. If your hearing is at any sort of diminished capacity, your brain's going to start to have trouble forming those circuits and it's going to put you more at risk for memory loss, dementia, Alzheimer's things. So making sure hearing. And so if your parents are hard of hearing or if anyone in your family has any issues with hearing, again, typically you don't want to start with hearing aids when your hearing's already gone. You want to start using those. And I'm hopefully going to bring this guest on to do an episode on this because I think it's fascinating and I think it's a really important thing. So that's what I'm going to say about that. Great question. Next question. What is the deal with EBV? My primary care says I shouldn't be worried about my elevated antibody levels, but I seem to have all of the symptoms of a reactivated case when I read about it online. Awesome questions. This is right in my alley. I'm treating so much of this right now. So Epstein-Barr virus is the virus that is responsible for mononucleosis. It is a virus in the herpes family of viruses. And it typically, most people will get exposed to it when they're in their early teens, maybe early 20s. It can cause mononucleosis. In some cases, people just get a cold and then they feel fine. 
when you get mono, typically you feel pretty sick. You get swollen glands. You can have a fever. You can feel pretty crappy for a little while. And then there's typically some fatigue that lasts for several months. So the interesting thing about this virus is because it's in the herpes family of viruses, it never completely goes away. So once you get it, your immune system will fight it and it will bring it to a level where it's not causing a problem. So it will kind of get bring it to a latent phase there is always the potential for this virus to reactivate, similar to the chickenpox virus or herpes zoster, which is the virus that you know a lot of people get or we used to get as a child. And then later on in life, it can reactivate and cause shingles. So Epstein-Barr is very similar to that. You get it, the immune system deals with it, it lays laden. And then if your immune system gets suppressed in any manner, this virus is what we call an opportunistic virus. It can come up and kind of come out to play and start to cause a lot of problems. And so I'm seeing this in a lot of my patients who had COVID at some point over the last few years, and they're kind of dealing with these quote unquote long haul COVID symptoms. I'm seeing that a lot of them are actually dealing with, you know, there may be some long haul COVID things, but a lot of them are also dealing with a reactivated case of Epstein-Barr virus. So the question was, my doctor doesn't seem to be worried about my elevated antibody levels, but I have all the symptoms of a reactivated case. So the antibody test that we do is testing for the body's reaction to the virus. Anyone who's had the virus at any point in their life will have mildly elevated of two of the antibodies. One is the antibody that goes against the outer part of the virus, the viral capsid antibody. And then there's another one called the nuclear antibody, which is the antibody to the nucleus of the virus. So typically, if you've had that virus in the past, you will show positive for two of these antibodies. If you come back positive, there's four antibodies that we test for. One's called the IgM antibody, which is the initial presenting antibody. And then there's another one called the early antigen. If you have the early antigen antibody elevated, that typically indicates that you have a reactivated case, meaning that your immune system took a dive and this virus creeped up and is starting to cause problems again. And some of the symptoms can be extreme fatigue. You can get swollen lymph nodes. You could get fever. You could get muscle aches. You could get joint pain. I've seen people have dizziness. I've seen people have rashes. Basically, it causes a lot of not so great symptoms. It can also be a major contributing factor to the development of adrenal fatigue. It's basically like a major internal stressor. And if your antibodies are very elevated, that typically means that your body is spending a lot of its metabolic energy trying to fight that virus. So I've talked about on the show before that your body has this metabolic energy, kind of like your currency that it's using to do things. And if we have a major battle going on, that's going to be expending your energy doing that, meaning you're not going to have enough energy to, you know, make the appropriate amount of sex hormones or make the appropriate amount of cortisol or fix the acne on your face or give you energy to get up and get out of bed in the morning. So again, it, it tends to be a big sh internal stressor to the system. So if you are like the person who asked this question, if you're feeling like you have all the symptoms of a reactivated case, your primary care doctor may tell you that it's not anything to be concerned about. I see all the time that treating this with an antiviral protocol can really help the body out and can help reduce a lot of the symptoms that you may be dealing with. There's a couple options. There's a lot of herbal treatments that can be helpful. You can also take if you're someone who's, who also has dealt with herpes and you have a prescription for Valtrex, obviously talk to your doctor. But valcyclovir or acyclovir is an antiviral that will kill any member of the herpes family virus. So it is effective at killing Epstein-Barr. thing you have to watch out for is sometimes just taking that medication doesn't completely fix the problem if your immune system is really, really low, which often is the case because that's the whole reason that the virus reacted in the first place, which is because the immune system tends to take a dip. That medication does not boost immune function. It just kills the virus. So I often find that the best treatment is some sort of viral 
you know, antiviral agent, whether that's a medication or an herb, and something that is boosting your immune system. And there's a lot of different ways you can do that. Again, talk to your doctor or make sure you're talking to a doctor who has knowledge about treating Epstein-Barr. A lot of naturopaths will have knowledge of that. There are some primary cares or some MDs that are, if you're curious about it, I treat a lot of it. You can call the office and set up a free consult if you're interested in that. But it's definitely a big thing. And I'm seeing, like I said, I've always treated this, but I'm seeing so many cases since COVID has been in the mix because I think COVID, you know, the virus itself weakens your immune system in a big way, but also just the situation that we're all in has been extremely stressful, which has weakened a lot of our immune system. So if you had COVID and the stress of the pandemic puts you at a much larger risk factor place for getting a reactivated case of Epstein-Barr. So great question. Thank you for asking that. Next question. I'm currently undergoing treatment for Lyme disease and I'm feeling very frustrated. I've had some days where I feel better, but I have had many days where I actually feel worse than I ever felt originally. I know that feeling worse before I get better is normal, but I just want to know, am I ever going to get better? Great question. And my heart goes out to you. Treating Lyme can be really frustrating and it is completely normal. And you guys know I've talked about this. It is normal to have days where you don't feel good. And then have days where you feel great and then go back to have days where you're not feeling good. The healing progress is not linear. Healing, you know, you may go three steps forward, a step back, four steps forward, three steps back. And that's kind of how the body, in particular with Lyme, like I said, my heart goes out to you. Lyme is, is it's not easy to get through. It's, it's a really pain in the ass little, you know, infectious thing that gets rooted into us really deep. So it, it, it can be, it can be challenging and frustrating to go through this, but Know that, you know, if you are having days that you're feeling better, that you're making progress. And if you're having days where you're feeling a little bit worse, that usually indicates that your body's doing a really good job fighting. So when you have those days when you're tired or you're in a line flare, or your body's aching or whatever it is that's worse for you, that's when you want to up your gratitude and your self-care practices and be like, God, good job, body. You're actively killing it. So, you know, in that time of period where you are going through Lyme treatment, the whole point of Lyme treatment is to bring that Lyme disease, you know, that spirochete into a place where the body can actually go and destroy it. And again, the days that you feel crappy, those are the days when your body is actively fighting and actively killing. So that usually means your immune system is doing its damned hardest to work hard for you. So again, those days where you feel bad, that's when you really want to try to wrap your mind around the fact that your body is doing a really good job of killing it. So hang in there. You are going to get better. Thanks for the question. I hope that answers if anyone else is feeling that way. All right. These are really good questions. Let me see. Okay. Next question. How do I know if the fatigue I'm feeling is due to thyroid issues or due to low adrenals? All of my labs show a normal thyroid, but every single member of my family has hypothyroidism and part of me thinks my thyroid is off. Excellent question. I talk about this a lot. And this is often a question I'm asking myself when I'm treating a patient. Is this thyroid? Is this adrenals? Because a lot of the symptoms can look very similar. So in your particular case, the person who asked the question, you know, if there is a family history of hypothyroidism, I'm always assuming that there's something probably not right with the thyroid. However, if your thyroid labs are really showing totally normal, like and you've had everything checked, meaning you've had your TSH checked, your T3 checked, your free T4, your T3 uptake, your thyroid antibodies, if they're all really in optimal ranges, I would treat your adrenals first and make sure that's the first and foremost treatment and make sure your nervous system is taken care of because sometimes the thyroid symptoms, oftentimes the thyroid symptoms are from chronic stress and adrenals not working properly. So because if you're in this particular space, probably both things are not working properly. This is really important. It's really important to make sure you're working with someone who understands your case and who's really well-versed in thyroid and adrenal stuff. 
again, I, I typically will want to make sure we're really treating the adrenals first. And if there's no response or if there's no change at all, and we, we've gotten your nervous system to a place where it's really happy, then we would go in and, you know, and sometimes you can have what's called euthyroid syndrome, where everything is completely normal. And often cases in euthyroid syndrome, there is a family history of hypothyroidism. And we will treat the thyroid until your symptoms get better. So again, if this is a situation that you're in and you're kind of trying to decide what it is that I like I said, I'm in this situation a lot from the practitioner point of view, like, Ooh, do I go after thyroid? Do I go after adrenals? And time after time in my practice, typically I will see the best results when we support the adrenals first. And then we go, if no changes have happened, then we go and support the thyroid. So I hope that answers that question. Next question. I'm in my mid-30s and my sex drive is really low. Is there something natural that I could do to improve my libido? Awesome question. So yes, there's lots of things you could do. One, you want to make sure that your hormones are in balance. So make sure that you are ovulating. If you're taking the pill, which I see this a lot women in their 30s and they're taking the birth control pill, birth control pill might not be the best for your sex drive. So have a conversation with your doctor about that. If you're not taking the pill and your sex drive's low, then we would want to go and look at your adrenals. And so the first thing that I usually will do when I'm treating someone's low libido is if stress is really high in their situation, is make sure we're properly treating adrenals. The other thing you can do, and this is not taking something, this is, you know, and sex drive is interesting because the more sex you have, typically the more drive you're going to have. So it's really important to whether you're doing this with a partner, doing this with yourself, is to have orgasms or try to have orgasms, you know, touch your partner, have physical touch is really important for increasing your sexual drive. And the more the more physical touch and the more like, you know, foreplay you're engaging in either with yourself or with a partner, that's going to stimulate the production of sex hormones. And the way it does this is it it puts your body into the parasympathetic state. Typically, when we're in a place where we're wanting sexual activity, typically your parasympathetic or your rest and digest is activated. And when your rest and digest is activated, that's when the body makes hormones. So the more time you can spend in that parasympathetic state, whether that's through sexual activity, whether that's through meditation, whether that's through naps or rest or, you know, anything that's calming your nervous system down, that's going to be helpful for boosting your sex drive and boosting your libido. Also, there are supplements you could take. Maca is an herb, which is really great. I usually will put people on vitamin B5 and vitamin B6. They're really helpful in the cofactor, help as cofactors in the production of sex hormones. And again, I really like to work on adrenal stuff. But I think the lifestyle things you could do is to spend more active time in that parasympathetic state. Awesome. I've got to jump onto my next recording, but it was great. These questions were really great. I thank you guys for sending them in. Keep sending them. Again, you can either send them to me directly on Instagram or send them to the info at drerinkinney.com if you've got a question and you'd like it answered. Thank you guys so much for all your support and continuing to listen. Love having you guys as support and I'll see you next week. Take care. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of The Dr. Kinney Show. Be sure to follow the show and leave a rating and a review. It supports me so much. Plus, I always love hearing from you guys. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I'll talk to you next week.